Hey, .NET Rocks fans. Richard and I are going to be at the Dev Intersection Conference at the Marriott Grand Lakes in Orlando, Florida, April 13th through 16th. Come see your favorite speakers, Scott Guthrie, Scott Hanselman, John Papa, Billy Hollis, Brian Noyes, Dan Wallin, Todd Anglin, Tim Huckabee, Michelle Bustamante, Miguel Castro, Duval Lowy, Kathleen Dollard, and many more. Go to devintersection.com to register now. You'll save 200 bucks if you register on or before February 24th, $100 if you register between February 25th and March 31st, and you can save an additional 50 bucks by specifying .NET Rocks is how you heard about the conference. More details at devintersection.com. We'll see you in April. .NET Rocks episode 950, recorded live Sunday, February 9th, 2014. This episode is brought to you by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. Online at telerik.com. And by Franklins.net, makers of GesturePack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Well, thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl and Richard, we're geeking out today. Yeah. We're geeking out about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and all of that stuff. Should I be like fun. this stuff. We have had uh, a couple of requests for this. Hey, you guys should really look into this, especially because last year the value of Bitcoin in particular got really high and uh, everybody started taking notice of it. And some weird things have happened in the news lately. But before we get into any of that, Richard, I believe... Uh, you wanted to read a comment. Well, you know, we only do uh, Geek Out once a month, so we get such good comments on Geek Out. Yep. It seems a shame not to read a few of them. Yeah. So let me grab one here from episode 908, and that is the one we did on asteroid mining. Right. If you recall, we had a lot of fun with that. And Mark DeWalls said, uh, in my opinion, I think we're thinking too small. Why do you think there are concerns about terrestrial economics beyond the initial stages? You have all the resources available in the asteroid belt. You think they're concerned about dollars? For what? They have an entire universe at their disposal with these kinds of resources. Which is more valuable, gold or an uninhabited planet or mm. a planetary system? Why not spend a few generations and build interstellar spacecraft loaded with materials from asteroids? Why not seed the entire universe with variants of our DNA? Mm. In the thousands of years it would take to make the trip, what would we become? Ask those who have been to space just how small our world really is. It's just our first little tree, and there's an entire forest out there. The game is too small. Think bigger. Well, Mark, I think you're misconstruing a couple of dimensions fairly significantly. Uh, asteroid mining is going to get us to other planets. And I think my favorite picture, the one I have around right now, is a photograph from Curiosity of the Earth rising on Mars. Yeah, and it is just a new. pale blue dot. And that's from our nearest neighbor. And it's still just a pale blue dot. Well, if you think about what Mars looks like from Earth, that's pretty much what Earth is going to look like from Mars. Yep. Yeah. It works that way. I just like that we, ha that we have that picture, that yep. you can actually see it. It's a nice, uh, you know, skyscape with this blue dot on it. Yep. Uh Interstellar spacecraft is an interesting problem. We could probably do a whole show around that alone. And my favorite book right now on that subject is a book by David Brin called Existence. I think I've plugged it before. Uh, well worth the read just because it's, I feel like it's the first real hardcore science fiction to come out recently that just makes you think about interstellar space being really, really, really far. <laughs> and it makes no sense to try and keep people alive all the way to another star. You know, that, that maybe the more sensible thing is that you robotics gets to a point where, A, you could get a robotic spacecraft there, but also you could ship frozen embryos there and actually raise humans once you get there if the planet could actually sustain life and so on. Now, I think when, I think we were thinking about the right scale with what asteroid mining is about. What frustrated me about the asteroid mining show was, most of the messaging coming out of planetary resources and so forth is very terrestrial. It's, hey, we're going to mine these asteroids, take the stuff back to Earth. And that is dumb. 
where it makes sense to mine the stuff in the asteroids to let us explore the solar system we're in. Mm. There's a whole bunch of stuff that has to happen before we really start talking about going to other stars. It's going to be really, really difficult. And I don't think we understand anywhere near enough to make it happen yet. But uh, maybe your grandchildren I, might be able to do that. Who knows? Uh, you know, the, we're at an interesting inflection point in society as a whole. You know, yeah. the, the singularity is coming in the next few years. I think before we can develop the technology that will actually lead us to space, we're going to completely disrupt humanity as we know it. Uh, we may or may not survive that. We probably will, but it'll be our viewpoint on it will be radically different. At least that's our opinion. Yeah, and then you know, there's a, there's at least two other shows that we could dig into in that particular uh, topic area. But Mark, I appreciate your thoughts. Great to read your comment on the show. I'm going to ship you a .NET Rocks mug, and if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or any of our mobile apps. We've got them for iOS, Android, Windows Phone seven and eight, and Windows eight. Those apps are built by Diatom Enterprises. Would love to build you an app. Just go to DiatomEnterprises.com. So, Richard, what is money anyway? Oh, it's a lot of things. Wait, uh, wait, a, if I have something that you want and you have something that I want, what makes you take this little piece of paper in exchange? Is is it only the fact that we both believe that it's worth something that makes it valuable? Um, to a degree, it's not just you and me, right? The, the mo in moderate fiat currencies, it's a whole bunch of people who've agreed that that's worth something, right? Uh, but you know, you, if you go back to the barter system, which goes back pretty old, it, you know, that's what humans have always done. Right. I had something you wanted, you had something I wanted, we found a way to trade it. The problem is that most of the time the things we want come in particular units of size. Sure. And you can't make them bigger or smaller. Well, and what happens when I already have enough of the stuff that you have and you have enough stuff that I have, now you got to walk a little further to find somebody who wants your stuff. But I might have found some other stuff that you want from somebody else. So, yeah, now, yeah you get a whole bunch of people in the same place and chaos ensues. Right. Well, you know, you get a bunch of different trading dynamics like that. And, and commodities trading, arguably all of this really started with grain. Mm. But there's uh, evidence going back to pre- um, uh, pre-city times, like 9,000 BC in around Anatolia, which is where is it currently modern-day Turkey, uh, trading obsidian. So, I mean, an obsidian in the Neolithic age was a pretty big deal, right? This was, this is volcanic glass. It can be hammered into shape to make very sharp edges, hmm. scalpel sharp edges. So great for weapons, great for tools and so forth. Huh. But I think I think it was the most important part about obsidian. It only was in particular locations, right? And it was, so it was mineable and it was in some ways fungible. Different sizes had different values. Hmm. So you had this ability to actually use it as a currency because you could have all these different size pieces. A cow is a cow is a cow, right? Yeah. If I got this cow, it's really kind of hard for me to give you half a cow. It's kind of hard on the cow. Mm. But I can give you a bigger or smaller piece or multiple pieces of, of obsidian. So I think you, you know, when you first start about talking about concepts of currency, you get into how is this thing divisible? Can I make it bigger or smaller? So would you say obsidian was maybe among the first known currencies? 9,000 BC, you said? Yeah. I think it's pretty much one of the very first. And it has a lot of the core ingredients of what we eventually know as currency. Hmm. It is uh, a limited resource. It yeah. only comes in certain locations. Hmm. There is a business in just producing it, but it can be distributed very widely. And that's what the, the archaeologists have discovered is, you know, obsidian has a very particular uh, uh, radioactive signal. So they can usually tell exactly what mine a piece of obsidian came from. Wow. And they found it thousands of miles away mm. from its mines and uh, in different societies. So it was clearly being traded amongst hunter-gatherers mm. all that time ago. Wow. And it wasn't until... What, 3000 or so BC by when we started trading metals? Well, that's, you know, now you follow basic human evolution, right? So you go out of the Neolithic age into the Chaleolithic, which, or the Copper Age. We start figuring out how to use copper. And, and you and I have had that experience going to some of these great uh, museums all over the world where sure. you see very mature stone tools and then you see the very early copper tools because mm. copper added advantages. And then you get into the Bronze Age and, and so forth. Each of these, again, mineable materials 
with particular intrinsic value, largely as tools. Although once you get to gold, it gets a little more interesting. Right. But the same mechanisms exist. They're fungible. You know, you could trade them for different things. They can be used in different sizes, can be cut up, melted together, manipulated in a lot of different ways. They're mined in particular locations. There's a limited amount of them. So from a currency perspective, they make a lot of sense. So when did coins start? Uh, coming on the scene as, you know, the, the currency. Well, coins start appearing at the same time that the first sort of banks start to appear. So if you get in into or sort of proto coins. So somewhere in the neighborhood of there's a big argument over when the first cities really formed right. places like Sumer and so forth. Mm. It's like 5000, 4000 BC. You see the first agriculture occurring. And Mesopotamia, the first grain being grown and so forth, so people could stay in a location and make enough food. Mm. And as they start to build cities, they start to build temples. And oddly enough, trade generally happened around the temple. The temples tended to be the biggest buildings. They were in the centers of these cities. And so that's where your trade really uh, starts. And it was also where you started having concentration of skills. So the first things you could call coins, although they weren't used as coins, were actually made in these temples as sort of uh, uh, symbols of, of wealth or of, of importance. They were made out of electrum, which is a gold-silver alloy. Hmm. And they would, but they would, the, the, you, we have samples of these in a few museums. They're relatively rare. Um, handmade, obviously. And, yeah, uh, handmade, stamped. Stamped, but yeah. They have the elements of coins, but they're not really coins. But when you really talk about coins, the way yeah. we think of coins, right? right? Silver coins, gold coins, electrical coins, even copper coins, yeah. with, with the head of the king on it and so forth. It's not until you're talking about Greece, maybe Argos, uh, you know, 500, 400 um, BC. Not Buddha's time. Yeah, you you have now you have real coins and and it, uh, let us not be too western centric here. The Chinese were doing right. it too. The Indians were doing it also, although the Indians tended not to use a round shape, they used a bar shape, but very much the same concept. Hmm. Hmm. And so um coins are great obviously because they can identify the government or the society from which uh the the currency came from, right? So so now we have our currency versus your currency. Well, an, an interesting effect here, especially we talk about a gold coin, that in theory, the gold coin has an intrinsic value that if you melted it down, yeah. it would still be worth that. Right. Although almost immediately after making coins, you start seeing laws against destroying coins. Mm. So. Interesting. You know, yeah. You know, yeah, that, there's some nice uh, parallels going on here today. Isn't, isn't it just like that's what I love about digging into <laughs> all of this is thinking about what's going on today yeah. compared to what's going on back then. And we'll so get it's to not that. all that different. <laughs> we'll get to that soon. Absolutely. That's but just now funny. you get into trade becomes the driver of this. And this is one of the things I always worry about banking as it's in an industry unto itself. Mm. And it was always a concern back then, too, because you don't make anything. Well, you know, and until 2010 or whatever it was when, you know, the the banking, 20, 2008, right? When the banking crisis, you know, the bankers started to get uh, creative with loans and turn them into ways of making money off of those who really couldn't afford loans. Well, and, and banks have always done that. It was part of the argument against banks, right? But when right. you get back to those early days, the beginning of the first modern era, almost every banker was actually a merchant. Mm. You know, it is the combination of mercantile trade that really change it with, with currency that things get really interesting. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. now you have people who are starting to move large quantities of goods. And the original is grain. So if you talk about the Levant, which is the eastern part of the Mediterranean, Rome, Greece, Egypt, um, the area that will eventually become Israel and, and uh, Syria and so forth, Grain trade really lit up there, and there and that that trade belt. If you when you get into talking about ancient trade, goes on to the other side of the Red Sea into India, all the way to the Spice Islands around Sumatra. Funny, more parallels. Yeah, more parallels For, coming. Stay tuned, kids. Yeah, a couple of thousand years worth of trade going back and forth between these mechanisms, and so merchants start needing to. Uh, move a lot of material and they need a lot of coin to do it. So they make money on, on both sides of that transaction and they start facilitating lending. Now at the same time, as soon as you've got a city, you got something to defend, you need to pay for it. You've got a leader. You mm. can call him a king if you like. Mm. And so you start seeing taxation. Mm. Mm -hmm. 
But kings don't make a lot of money on their own. So they work pretty closely with merchants to get materials necessary to build walls and weapons and all the things necessary to protect a society. And so the first significant money lending to governments comes from these merchants. And that behavior continues arguably to this day. Sure. But sure. most coherently, right up until the 19th century, you could absolutely, the, the role of the Rothschilds in the World War One was not all that different yeah. from the role of Sumerian merchants in the battle in Acadia. Yeah. So as we get into the Middle Ages, you see that commodity style, those coins just completely taking over there. And I also love the idea that the only reason we invented writing was to document transactions and inventories. Right. As people start to have stuff, they need to write it down. Yeah. You know, that becomes the motivation of writing. And, and if you dig deep into the, uh, the Akkadian form, what they call cuneiform writing, mm -hmm. writing on clay tablets, basically with press, there's literally 500 years. That's how people communicated hmm. around the Levant and further afield. There's clay tablets like this all over the place. My favorite clay tablet of all of them that I've ever seen, uh, in the Grand Museum in Istanbul. Is a tablet, a little one, and translated it's, it is a one brother writing to another brother about how his son is never going to amount to anything if he doesn't work harder. Hmm. And it's 3,000 years old. So like, lo I know this is that. a weird aside, but, um, would you say that the, the sort of right brain revolution of writing came in the Renaissance? No, I think, right. I think that writing is older than that. I mean, writing for the, for art's sake. Yeah, that's an interesting one when you see the artistic revolution, which is a very different kind of writing. Yeah. But, I mean, you still have, like, really ancient Chinese poetry and, you know, that predates a lot of that stuff. That's a, It's a, such a tough line to draw. Yeah, I guess you're right. You know? But when yeah. you get into the Middle Ages, uh, I was reading reading about Marco Polo. Um, the Ming dynasty that Marco Polo was trading in the 13th century actually had fiat currency. Uh -huh. As opposed, they had paper notes, right? That were basically the government guarantees that this note is worth this much stuff, right? Um, well before and pretty much anybody else did. Mm. Like that, that's a pretty big deal. What do you say? Thirteenth century, right? Yeah, thirteen. Yeah. yeah. So in the twelve hundreds was when Marco Polo was around. And he was. This is before shipping had matured to the point for uh, to actually do this. They were they were walking the Silk Road. So was there such a thing as credit back then? That really comes about as shipping matures to the point where we're talking about sending ships to the other side of the world. Right. So somebody, before they make a voyage, they're going to need to buy a lot of supplies. They need they need a loan. Before well, and they need to pay for the ship. They need to pay for the ship and all of that. Yeah. Right. And then, yeah, you get into two things. You get the, the, the loan to actually get all the gear together and then some sense of insurance. If the ship never comes back, what's the compensating mechanism? Yeah. And this is where you get a sort of first models of collectivism. It makes no sense if you've got enough money to finance a ship, don't do it. Mm. You get in with a group of people and you finance 20 ships. Right. Because chances are about half those ships aren't going to make it. Yeah. But half of them are. And the payback is so huge, it's worth it. So as long as you don't put out, you don't put all your eggs in one basket. And that's where you get into this concept of underwriting, of covering the costs across many different ships so that you have a better chance for it to work. And that's where you get what they call large scale mercantile banking. Mm. So it's many people putting their money together. I mean, this is a long way from trading currencies in the temples, but it's, it is the beginning of the modern banking system. And there's a funny aside here that you, know, you always wonder how they, um, they had, Jewish folks are always involved in banking and so forth. Mm. At that time, Christian law said that ursery, or basically charging interest, was illegal. No Christian would do that. They'd go to hell. Wow. And Islam, too, says no ursery. But in the Jewish faith, ursery was illegal between Jews. Huh. But other people you could charge interest for. Wow. And and so that's, you know, you start seeing that first part of banking from that. Now, later on, these rules were eased because bottom line is when you, all you're doing is transacting currencies from the other, you need to make a percentage one way or the other to make it viable. Sure. But now you're into an era, sort of the, you're coming out of the dark ages. And one of the first mega projects was the Crusades. So, yeah. you know, the, 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 uh, there's the outcry about the Holy Lands and you, I don't even want to get deeply into the Crusades, yeah, but they needed an astronomical amount of money and supplies moved around. And, 
And, uh, you know, one would argue the modern banking system was built on the back of that. Well, and one would argue that wars have uh, brought innovations in finance and, and money uh, throughout history. All along. Yeah, it gets only more and more clear as you get to closer and closer to modern history. Yeah, um, unfortunately. For better or worse. Yeah. Do you think the other one that – the other element that really interests me is as the shipping market starts to mature, and so 14th, 15th century, 16th century, the Spanish go into – the new world mm. and they uncover these huge amounts of gold, gold and silver yeah and they bring it back to the old world and they make it into coins many spanish galleons at the bottom of the ocean with lots of gold yes but many more made it back to spain yeah and when one of the first examples of inflation you can find anywhere in history is that era in Spain. Mm. The arguably Spain doubled the amount of gold available in the old world wow. because of their finds in the new world. Wow. And so they made a lot of coins and nobody had the concept of gold increasing or decreasing in value then. But the amount of stuff available in the world doesn't go up just because you have more money. Yeah. So what did the Spanish do? They, they decided that they're going to take on the English. And you think at the time, Spain is at the height of its power, right? It's got control of most of South America, a big chunk of North America, even mm -hmm. though the maps aren't even complete. It's quite powerful. And they build this amazing armada of ships and arguably really dumb ships because it becomes a mm -hmm. battle between the individuals inside of the Spanish royalty and the, and the higher families to build the most outrageous ship. And there's only so many shipbuilders, and there's so much money around. So what are the sh when you've got a limited resource but lots of value around? Yeah. What do you do? They start jacking their prices, right? And they start can and and there's this sort of mutual reality distortion field that happens here, where you want a bigger ship, you want more guns, to the point where the mainline Spanish galleons that were built for the Spanish Armada had so many guns and were so top heavy that when they actually tried to sail them, they were prone to rolling over. Yeah, it's kind of like the uh, the Olympics in Sochi. <laughs> Did I say that out loud? <laughs> it's kind of like that. And so, <laughs> a tremendous amount of the wealth that the Spanish extracted from the New World ended up in the Spanish Armada and destroyed in a matter of months. Now, when you say extracted, what did they actually do to get that gold? Oh, they extracted it all right. I wasn't going to go into details, but... You know, the stories of the Spanish conquistadors are are, are almost hard to exaggerate. Yeah, that's uh, pretty brutal. They held kings for ransom. Yeah. And, and uh, it, I've read some great books, actually, to the stories from the perspective of the those people there. Uh, and just, you know, what the, what happened with the Incans, what happened with the Mayans. It's, it's an amazing set of stories. All right. Well, so the, the, the thing I'm trying to get to is, folks, be thankful you live in a civilized world. When you see examples of people wanting to return to a less civilized society, you do not want to go there. Yeah. There are, we forget what we've got. Yes. You know, in, in as much as this whole show leads to a, con a criticism of the way society works today, the fact that we're able to even do this is sort of a sign of how far society has come. Yeah, it really is. You know, uh, uh, the Gates Foundation's latest publication is talking about this arguably is the best time in history. The fewest number of people have died mm -hmm. uh, of, of preventable causes. Mm -hmm. Like, there's a lot going right. So let us not indict the whole world here. Right. But, you know, I bring up the whole Spanish uh, conquistador bit purely because it's one of the best and earliest examples of inflation in a way where you th people want to believe that the gold standard would fix everything. Right. But there's consequences to the gold standard. And I think the Spanish went through one of the most interesting effects on all of them. All right. Uh, before we get into the modern age, there's uh, this matter of Hawala that we must discuss. So Hawala, and again, you're going to find some great parallels between that and these cryptocurrencies, something that she started back in the Middle Ages, uh, and maybe even older than that, nobody's really sure, largely in the Middle East, North Africa, South Asia. It's not a currency per se. It actually deals with multi-currencies, but it's focused around merchants and it's focused around moving money. So now we're talking about moving money without actually moving it. So what's so amazing an exchange, about exchange, perhaps it's it's not a, except that exchange implies that something physically moves, a right? Currency exchange. Yes, a currency exchange still talks about I have a pile of of 
coins from this country and I move them to another country to to another country to get a different pile of coins. Okay. This is more paper notes. So hmm. there's this concept of remittance, hmm. right? We don't do a lot of this in North America, but in the rest of the world, remittance is very very common. So remittance is I go work at a foreign country and I send money home, mm-hmm. right? And there are parts of the world where this is a huge amount of their income. Right. Right. It gets, it's a big deal. You, you meet folks that have, that have come from faraway places and they're working in, in a country. They send their money home and right. sending money home is just not that simple an idea. Right. Uh, but you know, literally a thousand years ago, this was going on. Okay. And so you would go to a local merchant that you trust and you would give that merchant money in the local currency. Right. The merchant wouldn't even write down your name. He would give you a code. But the merchant had a network of people, including somebody he knew who was another merchant in your hometown. Okay. And so having given you that code, giving you that code, he would then communicate with that merchant and say, this code is worth this much money. You then communicate with your family and say, here's the code. Go to this merchant to execute that code. And the merchant would then, uh, the, your family would then go to that other merchant in your hometown and execute the code and receive the money. Oh, nice. Right. So think of it as, you know, the That's sort uh, of a Bitcoin thing. It's very similar, isn't it? It really except, is. Except what hasn't happened? Well, the, the, the transfer hasn't happened between the person who originally had the currency and the, and the person who ended up with it. Right. It really went between these, the, the two intermediaries. Yes. The two merchants now have a debt between each other. Yeah. But the merchant, these merchants trade with each other regularly. Right. All the time. Right. And one of the things they're doing here is they're avoiding actually moving the money mm. because often they have goods to trade between each other. So mm-hmm. maintaining a transactional debt between each other, often if this money needs to move the other way, it's going to cancel out. When they go right. to move goods, they can move the goods without actually moving the money because right. it, they can limit taxes. So one of the things that's interesting about Hawala is that its cost of transaction is extremely low. Right. So, I mean, you tip process credit cards for your stuff. You sure. know, it's two and a half, three percent per transaction. Sometimes more. And sometimes more. It depends on the, on the particular. And when, when you talk about remittance. So if I want to use a traditional remittance service, you know, like Western Union, you're talking about 10% transaction fees. Sure. Like, yeah. They're yeah. hugely expensive. Typical Hawala transaction fee around 1%. Wow. Maybe one and a half. And you understand one of the reasons why is, this isn't their business per se. Right. Their business is actually being merchants, but have being able to accumulate certain kinds of money in certain kinds of locations helps them a lot. You know, it also helps their local economy, right? Sure. Because it, uh, it helps the people who come to them to, uh, aid in their transactions. Absolutely. And, so. and it's a, I think it's an important part of the overall process as we start thinking about how do we do transactions that are pseudo anonymous? Mm-hmm. You know, that they, it's, you don't have to go through a big identification process that have a low barrier to entry, no bank accounts, mm. no, you know, uh, none of that complexity that aren't necessarily bound to a given location and have a low cost of transaction or a low friction rate. It's wild. It's sort of a middle ages Western Union. And it, and it still goes on today. Really does, huh? Yeah. And, and, huh. and one of the cornerstones of this whole system is this idea that, uh, currency is about trust. Right. That it's about those merchants knowing and trusting each other. The cost of betrayal is so much higher right. than the value of the transaction. Right, right. Right? And that's where he says his real business is mercantile exchange, mm. is trading goods. And he needs trustworthy people on the other side more than the value of any given transaction from any given person. Pretty and wild. So, well, and it, you know, what? there's always a group of people that are anti-bank. Right, that are just like banking is wrong. We should just go back to the barter system. We should just go back to the gold system. Like, get rid of all of this stuff. At the same time, the way you keep transactions inexpensive, where we've seen examples of this, is when it's people who are our intermediaries in the business of routine trade, so that they right. get efficiencies of volume. Hmm. So I don't want to diss the idea that we need intermediaries for this. You want to do your work and send your money home, and you don't want to think about the rest. And you, but you shouldn't get gouged for doing that. How do we have a system that does that? All right, now let's uh, talk about modern day finance. The fiat currencies have become the norm in the what about the 18th century, backed by the gold standard. 
Yes, this is where, and and this is where this, but this is before governments have really taken out a monopoly on currency too. Mm-hmm. So you still had, if you look at the Civil War, you had two several different groups that were printing their own money in one form or another, right. and in the end, all paper money, all fiat currency, is really about a promise. Yeah. Yep. I promise that, and it, I'd typically back, back by gold. That this paper note is actually worth this much gold. Right. Right. But where it, they and that had its own instabilities. We had bubbles. We had crashes. You know, folks don't talk about the uh, the stock market crash of the 1800s in Vienna, but it was just as devastating in in Europe as the great uh, crash in in the 1930s. You know, that's the reality. Is this had always gone on as we started to get into this other currency model? Stop trying to physically move gold around. Start using paper. But by the 20th century, you've pretty much gotten rid of these third-party currencies. They more or less don't exist. It is a government monopoly on currency. It is backed by governments. And, and I, and when I say government, I really mean people. Right. You know, I'm not a person who, who looks at a government as a strange foreign thing. It's got its set of corruptions and its set of issues. But in the end, we elect these people. And even in environments where we're not electing them, we still, their ability, we need leaders and their ability to lead is still better than what it takes to overthrow them. Yeah. And and this goes into negative spiral or positive spiral. And I can create lots of outrage around that. But having, having spent some time in military (laughs) dictatorships and having spent some time in, in very unstable democracies, I can, the idea that we need leaders is significant and the, that's actually more important than the particular political system you put in place. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. But it's, I think, World War One, which in we could do a whole show on World War One, just in the perspective oh, of man. Yeah. the industrialization of war included the the first real modern banked war. Also, people don't know this about World War One, and just an aside, probably the most destructive war we've ever fought, the world has ever fought. More people died in World War One. Than a, a lot of people realize. Yeah. For, and from a lot of different things huge. and all kinds of strange things came out of that. You know, the, it, it's, it's a huge story and maybe we'll, we will spin that show off. Yeah. But the, I think one of the most important things that came from World War One was the Weimar German hyperinflation event that mm-hmm. the Versailles Treaty, uh, put the onus on the German government to pay back all of these governments, which they simply could not afford to do. Mm-hmm. So they just started printing money like wild. And uh, you had, you know, a lot of this leads to, you know, origins for World War Two. Right. You know, one would argue if, if Germany hadn't been ripped apart the way it had by the, uh, by the Versailles Treaty, Hitler never would have got into power. And it's a right. whole other... Again, you want to do another show again? There's, there's, there's a definite show to do there on World yeah. Wars One and Two. Yeah, very interesting stuff. But coming out of World War Two, you get to Bretton Woods, and Bretton Woods, in some ways, we so are still Bretton sa- Woods is a talk about Bretton Woods. This was a uh, an agreement, mm-hmm. right? What what is it's Bretton also Woods? a place, but yeah, it was, a, and that's where it, the agreement took place after World War Two. To uh, to help rebuild the the planet, the damage that happened all over the world from this war, right? And in effectively made an agreement that um, pegged the U.S. dollar at a particular rate. It was thirty five dollars per ounce of gold. Other currencies were essentially pegged to the U.S. dollar, so right. it sort of stabilized trade. The one of the byproducts of of Bretton Woods was that it effectively made the U.S. currency the world currency. Right. Not so much that it was a great currency per se, but it meant that there were a lot of U.S. dollars. The majority of U.S. dollars to this day, day are outside of the U.S. and right. not just because they're being held by China. Oil trade is done in the U.S. Like the the planet functions on U.S. dollars for better or worse, and you can be as outraged as you want about that. But when you yep. look at the math. That's what actually goes on. Right. But that system broke in 1971. Because we left the gold standard. That's right. Nixon took us off the, took the U.S. off the gold standard and fundamentally changed what money meant. And that's, we had a lot of problems in 1971, did we not? Mm -hmm. We, and did we have these problems, we had inflation after Nixon. We had inflation with Nixon. I mean, he was, he tried to put price controls uh, uh, on goods and things and, you know, tried to control the economy himself and completely came to the conclusion that, well, that's this is crazy. Yeah. How are we going to do this? This isn't working. 
And 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 again, the whole this is a huge topic of what what all of this means ultimately. And I don't want to make the show about economics. We're yeah. going to dance along the side of it the whole time. Although I love macroeconomics, it is very very interesting stuff. But I and I bring it to you to say we are in an economic system today that is only about forty years old. Right. Really. Yep. You know, there's been a Bretton Woods too, and it has some impacts and so forth. But for the most part, the economic system that the planet's functioning in is relative. It's two generations old, and we're still running into stuff we just don't understand. And if you think of what happened, and it started in around 1995 when the world discovered the internet. And this is really when the world discovered itself, because all of a sudden, and maybe even started with CNN, right? When we could turn on the TV and be anywhere in the world. But, you know, with the web browser, truly the world discovered itself. Yeah. We really did figure out what was going on in the world when we had no idea before. Yeah. You go back to Desert Storm in 91 and the real-time war, and then the internet becomes public in 95, 96. Right. Like, yeah, it's been transformative, and we had an economic model has just been struggling to keep up. That's right. And so, so the world is a global place now. We have all these currencies that are completely dependent on each other. Uh, the euro has come, and I won't say it's gone, but it has lived through, uh, lived through some turmoil. And um, th- this uh, Bitcoin comes around in 2009 as the first cryptocurrency invented by a guy whose pseudoname is Satoshi Nakamoto. That's not his real name. Nobody really knows his true identity. Well, it might even be a group of people. Nobody's, it might even be a group of nobody's people. Nobody's sure. Nobody really knows. But And that's kind of funny that uh, that we don't know who who invented it. But But the goals of Bitcoin were that we wanted to create a distributed, decentralized, and secure currency. Those are the goals of Bitcoin. And that the difference between that and a fiat currency, and this is right from Wikipedia, is that no group or individual may accelerate, stunt, or in any other way significantly significantly abuse the production of money. Instead, only a certain amount of cryptocurrency is produced by the entire system collectively at a rate which is bounded by a value both prior defined and publicly known. And that is really interesting because in some ways that is much more like gold mining or copper mining or obsidian mining yeah going and back to those early what, days it wasn't necessarily fixed but it was very limited and in some ways it was democratized that so anybody could do it so there are questions uh, that um i wanted answered i went researching this and the first thing is i had heard of the term bitcoin mining right and we have even thrown it around on dot net rocks a couple yeah. times mining bitcoins by running you know running apps that use uh, your GPUs and a whole bunch of hardware and you come up with Bitcoins. Well, it's not that easy. And my, my question was, you know, how can I make money mining Bitcoins if there's, you know, there's a finite number of Bitcoins that are available at a rate value, bounded by value? It, it seems like, it seems to me, and further reading clarified this, but it seems on the face of it that one could just, you know, get the most powerful computer in the world and just start pumping out money. Well, and arguably a bunch of people have. Right. But what's brilliant about the cryptography around Bitcoin is that it's a set number of coins that come out at a set rate. So as you accelerate coin production ahead of the scheduled rate of release, it gets harder and harder to compute them. And this is what it says, again, from Wikipedia, subverting the underlying security of a cryptocurrency is mathematically possible, but the cost may be unfeasibly high. For example, against Bitcoin's proof-of-work-based system, an attacker would need computational power greater than that controlled by the entire swarm of miners in order to even have a, and then there's a formula, one one half to the power of the number of authentication rounds for this cryptocurrency minus one of a chance, which means directly circumventing Bitcoin security may be a task well beyond even a technology company the size of Google. Right. So they come up with a cryptography that is incredibly resilient. But here's the, here's the problem with that. That is based on today's technology. Right. And anytime you base something on today's technology, you're asking for trouble in the future. 
Well, and I think that's part of what's intelligent about their equation is that because it gets harder as time goes by, it resists Moore's law. Yeah, I don't, I don't like it. I, it's without a doubt, it's an issue, but understand they did think about this. These yeah. guys did not go into this blind. They're like, how are we going to deal with Moore's law? And it's by making progressively more complex calculations. The thing that's incredibly compelling about Bitcoin is not just that everybody has a copy of the entire blockchain. That blockchain not only includes every single coin, the public key for all of the coins, but also every single transaction all right, of Fred, every you're, single You're coin. just going way beyond what most people are understanding. So let's talk about blockchains and how, how what mining actually is. So mining is the uh, mining is done by a group of people who are public people who say that they're going to mine. Mining is actually the overseeing of transactions. So you when you're mining you're not just running software that pumps out bitcoins. You are overseeing public transactions which are on a public server and available for all to see. The identities of the the transaction parties are are kept to you know bitcoin numbers or whatever you know customer numbers or user numbers or yeah, whatever they, they call it pseudo anonymous pseudo anonymous yeah. yeah so so it's like having a username right now those those names can those numbers can be traced back of course if you want to do enough work but but those numbers are there and so there are people who validate and approve transactions and make those transactions possible and make sure that they are that they're done correctly and for doing those transactions on their computers they are awarded a transaction fee and ultimately new bitcoins and it's not like they have special capabilities there is no internal you know central resource here right anybody can be part of that transaction if you have and the power the computing power to do it you can do it yeah, you can be part of it. You can be and that's part of the it. idea of a completely decentralized currency. It's a swarm is- of it's a swarm of public people who uh, who are untrusted essentially, but because there are so many of them, they are validating the tran- the viability of these transactions. That's essentially what it is. Right. Yeah. Now all of this is well and fine in 2009. I mean, the, the paper's there, and we'll include the link for mm-hmm. it for the, from the, the Bitcoin P2P cash system. Mm-hmm. And in 2009, 2010, like, none of this was a big deal. Right. Right? Like, you, you, there was people making coins, you know, arguably, uh, it, the group behind Nakamoto has a million of these coins. Right. But in computing them in the early days, which is not that big a deal. Right. You know, anybody could do that. It was, uh, you know, it's sort of in 2011 that you started seeing something interesting going on. There started being some papers and other people writing about it. Mm-hmm. But the highest value in 2011 that the Bitcoins ever got to is about $30 US. So guess what the current value is right now? Hit me. The last, as of this recording, which is uh, the 9th of February at 2.52 p.m. Eastern, is $662. And that's still half its peak during the Cyprus crisis. That's right. In November, wasn't it? Yeah, it was 12. Well, November, it was 900 something. I guess in December or January. Maybe yeah, I think was. the peak was 1200 bucks, which is 1200 bucks. crazy. But uh, yeah, I I think 2012 is the year that, that Bitcoin really became big. And it stretches into 2013. You'll find lots of articles about, you know, 2013 was the year of Bitcoin. But when when the Republic of Cyprus's economy was collapsing under the weight of the of the financial downturn and all of those problems, um, the IMF basically you know was after the, the the Cyprus to deal with this, and they were talking about uh, basically levying a tax against anybody with more than hundred thousand euros deposited. Mm-hmm. And as it turns out, Cyprus is was like the tax haven for. Russian and other Eastern European mobsters. So this was like the Swiss bank account of the the, the of the Eastern Bloc. Of the Eastern Bloc, right? Exactly. And so with the, but physically moving that much money is incredibly hard, right? right. We get back to this whole Hawala concept. Yeah. So what what did these guys do? They bought bitcoins. Mm-hmm. They bought a lot of bitcoins. They bought every bitcoin they laid their hands on, right? To just be able to buy bitcoins in Cyprus, to turn their money into bitcoins there, and then sell those bitcoins elsewhere. Right. And that's what drove the currency so, through the roof. So let me tell you about a couple of websites here. First one where I got that price is bitcoinprices.com, 
which gives you current exchange rates. And by the way, if you want to get started, you can just go to um, bitcoin.org and you can download an app called a wallet, which you will then use to store your bitcoins. And um, and it's perfectly legal. Like you're not going to get a call from anybody. You know, this is completely legal. At least in North America. In North anyway. America, right? So and you understand that owning a bitcoin means owning the private key. That's right. Of a private key, public key chain. All the public keys are part of the blockchain. Also, uh, if you go to https www.mtgox.com, this is just one to one of the many Bitcoin exchanges out there. And I have no idea if I can, I'm not vouching for them or telling you to use them at all. I'm but just MT saying. But MTGOX is rumored to be part of the, the Nakamoto group. Okay. That the guys behind, they're part of the original, MTGOX is part of the original. All right. Uh, so they've, group. they've been seen on, as seen on Wall Street Journal, CNN, Wired, TechCrunch, New York Times, The Economist, The New Yorker, Forbes. So they've been referenced by a lot of other people with way more class than us. So I figured they were pretty safe to, to, to talk about. Sure. Um, so, so right there, you can go to an exchange and you can take bitcoins that you have, uh, that will take cash that you have in your account, buy bitcoins, and then, uh, you can use those to buy any other currency. So you can trade bitcoins, buy and sell bitcoins. So here's my question, Richard. Yeah. If you're Richard Campbell and you know a lot about geopolitics and when, countries get in trouble and they move their uh, currencies into Bitcoin, you know, you know, see, you anticipate the price going up and going down, you could probably make a hefty bit of cash just trading Bitcoin because right now the currency is very volatile because it, there's not a lot of volume. And as that volume grows, the volatility will will probably stabilize. But, although one would argue it'll never grow substantially because there's a limited number of Bitcoins. Well, the, but the, there's a limited number, but the, the rate is increasing steadily, however. Yeah. But, yeah. In, you know, there's an interesting problem around the, these, the Bitcoin system that, that because it's a fixed number of coins, mm -hmm. okay. it's only ever going to get so big. But it brings me to a, but it brings up another question, which, and you might be in a good position to answer this. Can a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin stabilize or exacerbate a failing economy? Mm, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and how would it do either of those things? Well, I mean, the bottom line here is uh, we, what happened in Cyprus was a m flight of money from the banking system. So their their currency was – they couldn't get their money out of Cyprus? Is that That's what right. it was? That's right. Cyprus closed the banks. But they could buy bitcoins with Cyprus currency. That's right. So you can't go in and get cash from the bank, but you still have online access to your accounts or you have your credit cards that go against those accounts and so forth. And so you're able to buy bitcoins with it online, right? Do your mm -hmm. online transaction mm -hmm. and then resell those coins somewhere else, right? I mean, that is the game they played. So you think about what did that do to Cyprus? What was the problem with the banks in the first place? Yeah. The banks didn't have – had loans – that weren't being paid back mm. and they had to pay out, they have to pay out these things and they didn't have enough cash. Talk about destabilizing a country. When you have a currency flight, when a whole bunch of people get your, take their, your currency out of the country right. very quickly, yeah. that can destabilize your economy substantially. It's a big deal. And that's why Cyprus closed the banks in the first place right. was to stop that flight from happening. They didn't and expect that to happen, however. Bitcoin circumvented the process. Okay, well, that brings us to the criminal side of cryptocurrency, and there has been crime. First of all, your Bitcoins aren't safe. They're prone to theft. Now, one could say, well, so is gold in your house, and so is you're, you're prone to theft just walking down the street with money in your pocket. Yep. But Bitcoins are prone to theft. You're not even doing anything, and somebody could steal your Bitcoins. How, yeah, how does that happen? It's electronic theft. In the end, your private keys are your only evidence of that you own those coins. But how can can without getting my private key, can anybody can the people who are trading my bitcoins out there on the those exchanges steal them? No. You it's only when you give up the key. So, and the, the whole strength of bitcoin is this concept of no chargebacks, right? Once I give you that private key, that coin is gone. Now the question is, what did I give you that key for? Right. Mm. So I sell you a Bitcoin 
for $600 US. Mm -hmm. I give you the private key. You now have that coin. What if you don't send me the $600 US? I have no recourse. There are no chargebacks. Right. Right. So the coin is gone or you format the hard drive with the, with the keys on it. Yeah. Those coins are gone. Yeah. Right. Or I man, I social engineer a virus onto your machine that grabs those keys and takes them. And then I act, enact transactions to move those coins away from you. Got it. Right. Now, again, you're not truly anonymous. So given that I still know what that key is, the transaction that, quote, stole the coin is in the public record. Yeah. Including your identifying information. So if we want to go and to to actually track you down, we can. And that's what's, you know, happened all last year was we started seeing folks being arrested around this whole Silk Road marketplace. Silk Road. Let's talk about that. That is... Silk Road and Bitcoin aren't the same thing. Yes. Right? Silk Road was a dark net site. This is a place where you could buy drugs, where you could buy assassinations, you know, whatever twisted criminal thing you wanted, you could do it with Silk Road. The reason it became associated with Bitcoin is that that was a way to do a transaction that at the time people really thought was anonymous. Right. And, you know, we know it's not. And one of the proofs was that Law enforcement were able to roll up the Silk Road people pretty easily. And people were buying and selling drugs and doing all sorts of nasty things, but they didn't realize that, like you said, that Bitcoin wasn't anonymous. Right. Before when, before we get into that, I want to tell you about a zero coin. Zero coin was a proposed anonymity extension to Bitcoin, and in November 2013 was announced as a planned standalone anonymous cryptocurrency that would pro- uh, that would be provably anonymous. So you can check out ZeroCoin. Um, they promise to have uh, to be online this May. So that's interesting. We'll see. Yeah, we'll, and we'll see what happens there because clearly Bitcoin has gotten too important now uh, for a lot of this stuff. I mean, they, they, you know, folks, the fact that law enforcement is now arresting people for money laundering involving Bitcoin, right. which effectively is what Bitcoin is capable of doing. Yes. You can take currency gained one way, turn it into Bitcoin, and then sell it another, sell it into another currency somewhere else is a way to launder that money to right. create a separation between the two. Yeah. And uh, money laundering's a big deal. You know, after 9-11, the U.S. put an awful lot of energy into going after money launderers. Right. So, so there clearly has to be a solution to that, and and uh, uh, probably the pseudonymous thing is a, is is at least better than the anonymous uh, zero coin. So you're gonna have to watch out for that. We always get back to the question of why do you actually want anonymity? Well, yeah, that's that's a very good point, Mr. Campbell. Right. I want privacy, but I don't necessarily need anonymity. Right. So you know, it's just a question of when do you get to know who did that transaction. And that's, you know, there's a whole show around privacy, my friend. My goodness. Oh, that's coming. <laughs> Without a doubt. <laughs> that's coming. <laughs> oh. What's happening now with Bitcoin is very interesting. Obviously, many other pretenders have popped up. Right. So other cryptocurrencies. I, I mean, I appreciate that ZeroCoin is still using Bitcoin, but trying to deal with the anonymity situation. Right. Um, but then you get into Dogecoin and you like pick a cryptocurrency. And just uh, on the criminal side, uh, there's a there's been an arrest. January 26, 2014. Charlie Shrem, who is a prominent evangelist for the currency, who prosecutors called a Bitcoin millionaire, was arrested on January 26th, he uh, started a uh, an exchange called BitInstant, which was arrested for money laundering in the Silk Road drug case. Yeah. So well, and and I get into you know you're you get afraid of uh, of losing your bitcoins, right? Yeah. You don't. Yeah, hard drives fail. There's all these concerns. So uh, for a while there, there was a bunch of services that popped up. Yeah. That basically allowed you to store your bitcoins in the cloud. Yeah, and that's basically what he was doing. I think that's what he was doing. Anyway, you can read the story at tinyurl.com slash shremnabbed. That's H-S-H-R-E-M-N-A-B-B-E-D, shremnabbed. You can read the story there. In, in one story I read in the New York Times, not this one, he, he, he was kind of naive about what he thought was legal and what he didn't think was legal, but... Uh, it's kind of a pothead from what from what the press says, and uh, I wouldn't be too surprised if he just kind of spaced. 
Uh, and one of the problems we deal with cloud services is there have been instances where once a cloud service had a whole bunch of Bitcoins being stored in it, they just disappeared. Yeah. Because if you've got the private key, you've got the money. Yeah, right. And right. there is no, you know, this is what the EU warning, you know, the EU's position on Bitcoin is. It isn't regulated, isn't protected. The consumer should be aware. Yeah. But the bigger thing now is with both Russia and China making Bitcoin illegal. Yeah, this happened last week. Uh, it started with Russia. Um, and I say last week, that was the first week in February, I believe. Uh, Russia declared Bitcoin illegal right before yeah. the Olympics. Interesting. Yeah, China did it back in December, but, uh, uh, well, it didn't actually make Bitcoin illegal. What they did is it made it illegal for Chinese institutions to take Bitcoins. Right. And then just recently made it illegal, right? To own yeah. it. I don't think they've actually completely blocked it, but yeah, Russia's completely blocked it. They said, if you own a Bitcoin, you're breaking the law. Right. Which in Russia, it's almost like they pass that law and then they start kicking in doors. Yeah. And, and that's, uh, that was in response to what, Richard? I'm not sure. I, I mean, obviously, uh, one of the interesting parts around the Cypriot event that involved all those Bitcoins sort of speaks to this idea that an awful lot of money got moved and, and Putin's well known for going after wealthy folks inside of Russia. Mm-hmm. You know, he broke the oligarchs. He may be doing something similar now. You know, no, nothing happens in that country that he isn't involved in. So yeah. my, my sense is that there's a, there's somebody important inside of Russia who's still holding a lot of bitcoins and this is a way to get them. So should I be afraid? I mean, to use this stuff? Um, what, 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 why would I use bitcoin anyway? I mean, what does it get me? I, I understand that the value of a bitcoin can go up and down, but does that make it any more or less viable as a currency? Well, I think it makes it less viable in the sense that you have no certainty of what your Bitcoins are being worth and in forms of product at any given time. But does it mean that I might be, I'm, I might want to think about trading, you know, when, when the price is relatively low, buy some and wait till it's high and sell some? Or, or do, should we actually think about using the, using it to buy stuff? And what incentive do I have to buy something with Bitcoin if I'm not breaking the law? I mean, the main thing is cost of transaction is extremely low. Okay. Both for the merchant and for you. So, I mean, if you've ever tried to buy something with PayPal, you've noticed that PayPal makes money on both ends of the deal. Right. Right. They're always these cuts. There's exchange rates and so forth. So, the idea that you have a currency not necessarily tied to any any other country's currency sort of gets rid of that. The problem is volatility is not good for that. That no. you can get caught. Well, that's true. I mean, just as I've been watching the currency as we've doing as we've been doing the show, and it's gone up and down like ten, twenty dollars in either direction. Sure, that's yeah. not good. That's not good. No, that's people not want good. consistent value, and that's a, a weakness in Bitcoin. I think cryptocurrency is not going away. I think it's a big deal and an interesting idea. I don't know that Bitcoin is it. In some ways, Bitcoin reminds me of Napster. Yeah. You just know, sort of the first, the first one out there that matters. Right. The first one out there taking the chances, getting all the heat, clarifying the laws, clarifying the laws. showing the possibilities. Yeah. Now what you're waiting for is iTunes. That's right. Right. Yeah. And I think that's the most interesting thing that's going on here. Is it worth paying attention to? Absolutely. Are there development opportunities? Absolutely. There's, you know, there's a lot of stuff you can do with this cryptographic concept, not just in terms of exchanging goods and money, but actually in having a decentralized record of the truth. Yeah. Right. Imagine just using, making sure that a document was handled correctly because it has a chain mm. of record that everybody can see on its changes. Mm-hmm. So you could be absolutely confident that nobody's manipulated that thing any oddly, and you have a clear record of all of it that can't be beaten, hmm. right? So the, the, there's a bunch of things that come out of Bitcoin, and again, it makes me feel like it's Napster, that this mathematical idea is applicable to a lot of different things, not just money. Right. This idea of of money that is completely decentralized is compelling for a lot of different reasons. Hmm. Uh, it's also threatening to the incumbents, and that always means there's going to be a lot of pressure around that. But choosing which to do, uh, where to go with that, I would not be betting my life savings on bitcoins. Uh, if you want to experiment with, go ahead with it. Mm. Uh, yeah, you, you know, dealing with transactional differences, you know, you're going to find out. Just make sure you don't bet anything big because there are consequences. I think the gold rush for Bitcoin is over. Really, B- Bitcoin really millionaires. Do? I mean, are done. It, it really is. 
I really think it is. When you look at how many coins have been mined, how much energy is being pushed into mining now, so it's very hard to mine new coins. When you look at the volatility of the currency, the amount that's already out there, and the the focus that is on it, I think the big wins are done. Hmm. Other currency, there are other currencies coming up, and they may or may not surface. You know, now, now the question is, can you pick the iTunes? Yeah, I'm not so sure. I agree with you, Richard. I th- I think there may be changes to Bitcoin's policies that will. I you know I think it's too almost successful to to let itself fail. But understand the idea that changing a policy on Bitcoin means everybody agreeing to the change of the algorithm, yeah. which is almost impossible. Yeah, maybe right. So Bitcoin's always going to be what it is. So the only way to change it is to make something else. Maybe. Interesting. Dude, that's an hour. Can you believe it? I can't believe it. I could go on talking about this stuff forever. I mean, this is really, <laughs> it's very brain stimulating. Yeah. yeah. I hope uh, folks like this. If you... I. Give us some feedback. Yeah, please. You know, we, we don't claim to be experts on this stuff. We, we just like to start the conversation. So if you have stuff to contribute, please leave a message on the website. Uh, if you're an expert on Bitcoin and you want to come on the show and do another one with us uh, or on cryptocurrency in general, please speak up. We'd love to talk to you. Absolutely. And that's the show, Richard. You bet. There's that music. <laughs> and we'll talk to you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Transmitter bands by the FCC. Yes, I'm a